It was a huge blessing. So there are multiple ways that we can bless other people, and that's what it means to get fit to fight. It's choosing that you're going to be a blessing. And the way that we choose to be a blessing, the way we choose to follow God and obey his commands is when we come to a point in our life as Joshua decided to address the nation for change. He says, God has been faithful to us. God has been faithful to us, but I see that our eyes have gone astray. And he gives this challenge as Joshua is leading the people. And he says, we need to decide. We need to decide that uh, we either need to serve the gods of our forefathers in the, in the times where they were inhabited in the land of the region of the Tigris and the Euphrates across the river, or we need to serve the, the God of the Amor uh, Amorites, the, the people that are here. We need to serve them. Or we need to serve the one true God. And he says, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And that's where we hear that famous passage in that text. But he's in a sense saying, as John said in Revelation, that Jesus says, you need to decide, hot or cold. I'm tired of the lukewarmness. It, it causes me to want to spit you out of my mouth. And so the way we decide to embrace change is through the home. I know that that's different than many of us have been taught and even thought. We think if we're going to embrace change, it needs to start at the government level. It needs to start at our homes. We need to start writing our senator more. And while those things are important, those things are not the agent of change. The agent of change begins when you and I in here as adults make a decision, whether we're singles, whether we're married, whether we're divorced, whether we're grandparents, that as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And listen, we have the sign in our living room, but it's more than a sign in the living room. It's a cognizant choice. It's an act of will to say, no, we're no longer going to go with the tide of culture. We're no longer going to be swept away by various teachings, by various pleasures. We're not going to be tossed to and fro, as Paul says. We're going to stand for the Lord. And as our house, we're going to serve the Lord. And so if you're here today and you go, man, I'm really signing up for that challenge. I want to get fit to fight. I want to serve the Lord. I want to advance his kingdom. I want to be about the business of making God famous in my life and in our kids' lives and our marriage, etc. I want to bless other people, uh, whether it be your neighbor, whether it be your friends, whether it be your coworkers. I want to be a blessing to people. Then I'm going to encourage you to recite this line with me. Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, okay? I'm going to count to three so that we're all in sync and you're not out there wondering, when do I start, okay? So Joshua 24, 15, only if you mean it. Listen, I get it. There's some of you in here, like you're, you question whether or not there even is a God, and we're glad that you're here. So no means do you need to make a declaration to God that you're going to serve the Lord. That's okay. But if you're here and you go, no, I need to serve the Lord. We want to serve the Lord. We're making steps to serve the Lord. Then this is an opportunity for you to join us as we ask God to unite us on this special day. Joshua 24, 15. Ready? One, two, three. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me, we will serve the Lord. Amen? Okay, let's pray together and let's ask God to bless this time. God, we love you. We want to serve you. We want to be obedient to you. And I pray, God, that that change would start in our own lives. Father, that we would not be looking for this next election to set us free in this country. I pray that while that election is important and we need to be prayerfully considering it, we need to get out and vote and we need to do all those things. I pray we'd know that the change starts in our own lives, that it's us declaring as a people. It's as the church beginning to be a city on a hill a light that's not easily overtaken and it's not hidden under a lamp. Lord, I pray that we would be the light of the community. I pray that we would live well, love well, serve well, and that as for us in our houses, we will serve the Lord. And I pray that this series would strengthen us in that effort. In Jesus' name, amen.
So in Deuteronomy chapter six, uh, what we see is a declaration um, from Moses to his people. And it's really from God to his people in terms of what they should be doing and how they should be serving. And it's for the family. And so the idea of fit to fight is the strengthening of family. So I want you to know this. The fit to fight series is not something that we're simply embracing for about a seven week stretch. Oftentimes you'll come, we'll be a part of a sermon series. The sermon series will intrigue you. I remember a few years ago or a couple of years ago, we did a series on Daniel and we looked about Daniel, what it meant in that time, but also we looked at prophecy and it was one of the greatest times that we've ever done. But now it's been two years and you're like, I don't even remember what Daniel said. You know, it's almost like you would need this to happen again. We'd need to go back and reteach Daniel because you're like, I've forgotten. I've slept since then. But the idea of fit to fight is not one of those series where we go, oh, a year from now, I forgot the fit to fight series. I need to go listen again. I need to go try to relive it again because our marriage is in a different place. No, fit to fight is actually a campaign that we're beginning in our lives as leaders for the next three years, and then all the way through the culture of our church. So what I'm saying is this, is that we actually have been praying about and for months talking about how we move families forward within our church, knowing that change has to begin at the family level. And we would say without hesitation that people who are most committed to our church, people who serve, who give, who don't complain, but they're blessings rather than a curse to the church, all have great relationship with God and they're blessing their family and other people. That fit to fight is something they do on a continual basis. It's a part of their lifestyle. And this, this sermon series is not reteaching them, it's just polishing them. And there's some of us in here that this is reteaching us. Like we're having to peel back the core and we're having to go, man, I wish I would have had this 15 years ago. And if you say that, then what you're saying is, is that, man, I wish that we wouldn't have done some things backwards. And the good thing is we have a God that although we oftentimes do things backwards, he can redeem the time that's been lost. And so we're looking forward to that. But what I'm telling you is this, the fit to fight campaign, the idea of this is something that's moving deeper within, within our church and the confines of the culture at Stone Point, rather than just some cute series we're doing for Valentine's Day and for the month of February and March. So what I mean by that is this, we actually have a three-year plan in place right now. And the three-year plan begins with the husband of the household. And I know, ladies, I, I get it. You go, oh, why do y'all always do so much for men? Well, actually, a core value at Stone Point Church is that we're going to invest in men like we invest in no one else. And the reason why is because all statistics point to and prove that if you get the man and the family, you get the whole family. And so we're investing in men and we do some things for men, but we don't do near enough with men. We have not challenged men near enough in the last five years, but we're going to, and we're going to be intentional about that this year. We're intentional about it and it's going to start today and you'll see it. But it's not just today, it's throughout this whole year. We're going to be more intentional about men. Now, next year you go, okay, hopefully we've had a year to invest in men and we're going to continue investing in them, but we're going to pick up ladies. And we're going to say, you know what, year two, we're going to invest in men like we did in year one, but we're going to ramp it up. We're going to be intentional about investing in ladies. And we're going to be intentional there. Year three, guess what? We're going to move from men to women, continue the same tenacity and intentionality, and we're going to invest in kids more. And what I want you to understand is that's not simply programs. So don't always attach it to, oh, it's a new program, a new ministry. No, we don't need more programs and need, we don't need more ministries. 
We've been full of churches who have programs and ministries. And when one program doesn't work and one ministry doesn't work, they shut it down. They recreate another one. No, we're not in the process of creating or recreating ministries. We're in the process of discipling, taking men and challenging them, teaching them the word, training them towards righteousness, doing the same with women, doing the same with children. And so that's the plan for the family. And then that's going to set the stage for the culture at Stone Point for all the years to come. But we believe that it starts here in this idea of fit to fight. And we're going to be reminding you of this all the way along the way. And so we're going to be spurring you on men throughout the year. We're going to ask you to do some things. We're going to challenge you in some ways. And ladies, you're going to be having the tendency to say, well, why don't they do anything for us? And I'll tell you that if we don't do something for you by the end of year two, then you should shoot us, okay? You should stone us, tar and feather us, do whatever you want, okay? But know that this is the plan and we're not approaching this lackadaisical. We're not approaching it without much thought and prayer. We've been talking about this for months and we are implementing it now. This not only changes the confines of the culture, listen, of families, but it changes the confines of the culture of our buildings. There are things that we're going to present to you in this series that are altering for our church. Why? Because if we're going to be about families, then we need to make sure that we promote that every single weekend, every single time our doors open. We need to create families, friendly atmosphere, etc. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, look at verse 4 with me. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hebrews would oftentimes look at this and they would say, Well, look, that's what we mean by the Lord is one. And matter of fact, in the Hebrew, this is uh, the idea, verses 4 through 9, of a Shema. It's to hear. It's something they would recite on a daily basis. They would get up, they would wake up, and they would recite this, these several verses, 4 through 9, and they would repeat those every day. And it was a reminder to them as to what they should do from God to the people of Israel. And the very first line it says is, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And we oftentimes look at the Lord and we go, yeah, of course he's one. But we have a distinct belief in the Christian faith that even Hebrews do not live by. And that is that there's the, the Trinity of God, meaning there's God the Father, God the Son, right? God the Holy Spirit. Now, oftentimes that can be a very confusing thing in our culture. And it can be very confusing with us within the church. But when I read, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, even though I believe in the Trinity, although we teach the Trinity at Stone Point, that does not negate that the fact is the Lord is one. Because what we would say is the Lord is indeed one. And he exists in three different distinct personalities. And so matter of fact, if you look at God, there is order. Yes, you have Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You have Master Architect, the one who designed all things. You have Jesus, the Son, who laid his life down for those who were separated from God because of their sin. You have Holy Spirit as the more suitable helper who allows us to live for God, to be trained or be rebuked towards righteousness, right? To be convicted. He lives in us. He's the deposit of the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1. But what's interesting is, is this. If you walk outside of those doors and you go outside, you're going to look up, maybe not today because of all the clouds, right? But every other day you would look up and you would see a sun and you don't question the sun. Matter of fact, you embrace the sun. The sun is a part of our life. And you, you know so much about the sun that you actually don't even think about it anymore. But the sun does three things every single day. One, it allows our entire solar system to revolve around. It's the center of our solar system. It provides heat and it provides light. Now, while it has three distinct personalities, it's one son. And God is the same. God is father of all. He 
sends his son to redeem what's been broken and lost, and he gives us the Holy Spirit to allow us to live and what? Abide in him through godly means of obeying his word. Yes? And so the, the, the idea of the Lord our God is one is so important. Here's why. Just as the Trinity exists, it exists for two reasons. Okay, more than that. But it exists for, obviously, our fundamental belief system. But it is a picture of marriage and it is a picture of the church. What do I mean by that? The church is this. It is to be unified just as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are unified. It is to have order not confusion, not chaos, but order, but yet also maintain the diversity that's there. So Father and Son, Holy Spirit, all have unique roles, but there's great order. They all submit to each other. And then get this, there's unity. They're not fighting. They're not gravitating for power. They're one. That's what it should be in a marriage. That's what it should be in a family. That's what it should be in the church. There should be order. There should be unity. Yeah, there should be diversity. Everybody should be able to what, contribute their gifts. Father, in a marriage should be, what? He should be the leader of the household. That's what the scripture says. If dad doesn't do his job, then guess what? Mama has to step up. We have that all too often in our culture. Not because it's wanted, but sometimes it's needed. Mom has to lead. And so men, God's created us to lead. Ladies, he's created you to be helpmate, to encourage your husband, to help sometimes remind him, to spur him on towards love and good deeds. He's created children to use their gifts and to support the family. And there's, there's what? Order, there's unity, but there's diversity. The homes that are the most attractive homes are the ones where these three things are happening, where you have a solid dad, you have a suitable helper and a mom that comes alongside to encourage and, and to point people towards the gospel. And every single kid in the family, listen, has a, a voice. They're not the main say, they have a voice. I'm not speaking of getting things out of order where, where what? Kids run the house. That's not order. Order is you got a dad and a mom and you got kids. They all have great, what, unity, but there's also diversity and able to use their gifts. Does it make sense? So the Lord, our God, is one. That's incredibly, incredibly important. And it says, and out of that, look at verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And then after you display love, it says, and all these words that I command you today, they should be on your heart. You should teach them diligently to your children. You should talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be on the frontlets between your eyes. And those are two Jewish traditions. They would write them on their arm. Uh, they would also have phylacteries on their head, which are little boxes that contain scripture. And so there were, there were things that they were doing to remind themselves of the word. And then he says in verse 9, you shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. And this is going to kind of be the basis as we move forward in the next few weeks. But what I want you to understand is this. The households that are the most attractive are the ones that are bound together by order, by unity, diversity, gifts being maintained, all seated in love. All seated in love. And I, every single holiday, I try my hardest to go man, I don't want to just do some cliche text that every single church in the world is doing. And while I don't think there's probably a ton of people doing this text today, I cannot help but deal with the issue and the topic of love on this Valentine's Day. And the reason that I am is because if you look at verse five, there's a, there's a type of love that we're to have. And it says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now we're going to talk about this in just a second in detail, but I want you to see three 
myths that have happened throughout our culture, and they, they derive and revolve from a Greco-Roman type of love, a Cupid-shooting, arrow-throwing type of love, a love that our culture has embraced, a love that is happening all the time, even in the midst of this room, in this church, in our marriages, etc. And my, my prayer is, is that God so grips us today that many of our marriages have to take a step back and view love differently than what we're viewing it now. And the reason why is the culture has spoken so much towards our relationships and our loves for other people. And our love for God is not being the mainstay. It's not the thing that's changing the tide of the culture. It's the love that we've been taught. And three myths that we see are here. One is that love is developed by chance. That it's two people sitting in a restaurant with their friends, and all of a sudden they look up after eating a slice of pizza. The dude's got pasta all over his face, but he sees her and she sees him. And they gaze each other's eyes, and all of a sudden you have love. Like by chance, you just had this moment, this explosion within their being, and they looked at each other and they knew that there was no one else on planet Earth that was theirs besides that person. I'll tell you, you have to have some incredibly good looks for that to happen, right? For you not to have to know anything else about their belief system, about their faith, about their family, about our past, about who they've been with, about who they haven't been. To say love happens by chance is an incredibly large myth. Now, what I believe is so ironic is that it's happening all the time in the church. You'll see people and they'll say, we had love at first sight. We, we not only loved each other, but that we knew in an instance there was no one else for us on planet Earth. We are soulmates. Now, personally, I don't believe in the idea of soulmates. I believe that's a myth too. Soulmates would mean that God only designed one person in all the world for you to love and for them to love you back. And I just don't believe that's true. That's a mythological type of love. The only soulmate that we should have is Jesus Christ, the one who laid his life down for his friends. And the greatest love we should have is, well, love for him. And as we love him, guess what? That type of love, not a Roman mythology type of love, not a Grecian type of love, a, a love that not developed from chance, but a, a love by choice is different. And we'll talk about that in just a second. But a love by chance is happening all around us. That a Cupid showed up one day on Valentine's many years ago, and he shot you both, and all at once, bam, you had this explosion. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of Darwinianism. See, what we would say is this, as Christians, we, we could not believe in a thought of Darwinianism, that we believe that life was not some big explosion, some, some thing that happened and then mass developed, and over time it evolved and evolved and evolved and evolved, that we are actually from apes, and now we've developed into humans. The question I had, and I actually was posing for our staff, we were talking and joking a little bit this week, is this. If you have monkeys, and we're from monkeys, then where are all the Neanderthals? Because if you have the end of the evolution, and you have the beginning of the evolution, why don't you have any of the in-between evolution? And so you would all say, well, that's a great point. I believe in you. I, I don't think that we have evolution. I believe that there was a master designer, a creator, an architect. His name is Father, Lord of all. He used Jesus to create everything, speak it all into motion. And you would go, I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. And you should, because it's biblical. But what's interesting is, is this. Just as the world did not evolve from a big bang, neither did your love. Understand? 
you can't take both and say, well, one develops out of chance and the other doesn't. No, if you didn't develop by chance, then guess what? Your love for someone else cannot develop by chance either. Understand? Capiche? Comprende? C, there we go. Love is not a sensual force. Myth number two, love is not a sensual force. Love is not something that we just feel for someone else. It's not negating all the formalities of marriage and, and uh, relationships and dating and courtship. But if love is a sensual force, then here's what you're looking for. You're l- looking for compatibility. And our culture says sensual force is so important that after the Cupid shoots us, we should run together. And in our culture, we say move in together, become compatible together. And once you experience the sensual union, there is no greater capacity for love. That the sensual union of two people living together, abiding together, enjoying everything together, that that's, the, that's the, actually the pinnacle of your life, that the sensual lust that you develop for one another is all the relationship has to offer. The problem with this theory is, is that it's bound in emotions. It's bound with emotions being the top priority, that you fall in love with this emotional love for each other. You, you look at them, they look at you, you gaze in each other's eyes, you say instantly, I don't need to know more about you or your faith. Let's just hook up. Let's live together. Let's, let's love each other. The problem is, is that when the emotions begin to wane, when the senses begin to fade, you look at each other and say, I'm not so sure I'm in love with you anymore. And so we know it's not a sensual love. And and not only that, it's not an uncontrollable force. An uncontrollable force is this. I don't know what came over me, but I just love him. See, an uncontrollable force is something that you can't control. Understand? It's not an act of will. It's something you can't control. It's like an explosion. And an uncontrollable force literally is in your eyes, in your face, and you would say, I don't know. I can't control myself. And many of people sit in my office, although it's not much of an office, it's a funeral home. And they would look at me and they'd say, my, mar- my marriage is dead. And I'm like, well, you're in good company. It's okay, okay? And I said, why? And they say, well, I don't know. I don't know. And I'm like, what do you mean you don't know? Brandon, I'm just not in love with her anymore. And I'm like, what do you mean you're not in love with her? I don't know. I can't control it. And I'm like, well, who are you in love with? Well, there's this lady that I work with. Huh? Like, did something overcome you? Yes, it's like this uncontrollable force. Like, I don't know. I I look at her and I want to love her. I want to live with her, but I just don't love her. And something's overcome me and it's so great. And I look at her and I don't know. She just, I don't know. I just feel sensuality and I, I feel like there's something there. It's like, she's my soulmate. And it's all built on myth and lies. And the reason why is because Deuteronomy chapter 6 shows me how to love. Look at verse 5. Look, look at it with me. Y'all with me? This is pretty crucial. Pretty big for some of our marriages in here. Pretty big for some of our families in here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The emphasis on your heart, your soul, your might. He says you should love the Lord your God. Why do we love the Lord our God? Is because in John chapter 13, he, John says this, uh, what Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you will love one another. Just as I've loved you, you're to love what? One another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples. He says, the way that you love actually dictates your love for God. 
Matter of fact, I would go out on a, a limb and I would say that if you and your spouse have a difficult time loving one another, it means you have a, a difficult time loving God. It means that someone within the union is not abiding, living, and giving all of their life and all of their heart, all their soul to God. Matter of fact, listen, if your marriage is at the brink, then here's what's happening. It means that one of you is actually running from God rather than to God. Because as your marriage gets better over time, as you decide to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, you cannot help but love other people, right? I can't think about loving your neighbor and it not starting at home. I said that last week. It has to begin at home. And so if your greatest neighbor is your wife, the one who you neighbor with every single night, then you ought to love her. But you can't love her with a, a mythology type of love because it fades, it wanes, it, it, over time, it, it, it can just uncontrollably come over to you and you say, I don't love her anymore. But that's not what God says. God says, two people who love him, and he's the center of, of their lives, the center of their marriage, two people who are working towards God, loving him with all their mind, with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their strength, are what? Going to grow closer together over time rather than further away. Understand? That as you both grow towards God, you can't help but grow closer together. And how does it happen? Well, it happens when you love God first and foremost, but you love him with all of your heart. Now look at the word heart. The interesting thing is this word heart is actually a, the Hebrew word labab. And it's L-E-B-A-B. -E but it literally means an act of the will which goes against mythology. Mythology says you just happen by chance. We're, we're here, the God of the Bible says, no, your love happens as a result of your heart. It's an act of will, it's determination, it's grit, it's fight. It's not giving up. You know when you see a good football game and you go, man, I cannot believe they won it. But th that receiver, he just had heart. He wouldn't give up. What does it mean? It doesn't mean that he had this incredible heart pumping and his heart just beated faster than everybody else's beat, right? it's this word that says he has an act of will. He has grit and determination that no one else has. And that's what the word in the Hebrew actually means. That when you love God, that you do it from an act of will. There's something deep inside of you that just keeps moving you forward, that you trek forward, trek forward, trek forward. Whereas a mythology type of love says, no, it's too hard. I got to give up. There's someone else out there for me. We obviously aren't compatible. We obviously aren't on the same page. And so I don't love them anymore. And that is not a God-centered, Christ-centered type of love at all. A God-centered love says, I'm going to love you with all of my heart. And what's interesting is, is that we oftentimes think of the heart as opposite of the mind. We think heart is like this feeling. And if my heart feels it, I mean, I, I've heard many couples over the past, they say, you know, I just can't stay in it. I'm just not happy anymore. Well, when's the last time that anywhere in the Bible, get Christ mandates you in your marriage to be happy? It's not there. You know what Christ calls you to do? Be obedient. He says, I need you to be obedient. Then he says this, I need you to love with all your soul. The word soul there is the word nephesh and the idea of emotions. What's interesting is, is a mythology love is built entirely on emotions, right? We have emotions, right? You have a heart that beats. You have a mind that works. You have that love tap when you see her, Right? The question is, is in the midst of that tap, in, in the midst of those emotions, in the midst of that Cupid shooting, are you going to say, oh man, 
I love her. Or you can take a step back and say, no, what is God-centered love? Why am I going to love them? And then what's it going to move me to? Because listen, there is no couple in here that when you got married, you looked at your spouse and said, man, there's just no emotion there. There is emotion, but emotion is not the primary decision. It is something that accompanies an act of will. Understand? Do y'all get this? Emotion is not the primary decision maker. It is something that accompanies the act of will. So you level your heart and act of will and guess emotion, your soul, the way that God created you, the inner chamber that he gives you to love him completely, it follows the act of will. I cannot help but Jacob. Think of Jacob. Jacob is a guy in the Old Testament. We covered him not too long ago uh, in one of our previous series, Jesus, the True and Better. And we looked at Jacob. And Jacob was a guy who deceived his father, uh, Isaac. He had a brother named Esau. Esau had the birthright. And he deceived his dad, went in, him and his mom. They told some lies, did some cover-up things. And ultimately, he got the birthright that was actually Esau's. Well, later on, he leaves the house. He has the blessing, et cetera, but he's not living for God and not abiding for God. And he goes to a guy's house named Laban. And he goes, Laban, man, you have this daughter that I would really like to marry. She is beautiful. Her name was Rachel. And he goes, awesome, man, you can have her. Seven years of work and she's yours. He's like, no problem. And he goes to work. And for seven years, he labors and he toils and he works and he works and works. And after seven years, he goes, well, she's yours. Tonight's the great night. It's the consummation. He puts the tent up. Lights the candles, says, hey, boy, go in there. And he sends his daughter in. And she goes. And in that moment, it was the dead of night. He couldn't see her, but he had all these emotions. He could smell her. He could touch her. He could experience her. And he had this great relationship. And it was like, oh my goodness, this night of pleasure, this consummation of their relationship. And then the next morning, he wakes up, the light of day dawns, and he looks over and he goes, ah! <laughs> it wasn't Rachel. It was her sister, Leah. And Leah wasn't Rachel. Rachel was the looker. She, she was the one that when you saw her, it was like, oh my gosh, first love. When you saw Lee, you go, whoa, it's going to take an act of will. <laughs> ain't, ain't no, I, I can't, I'm not going to pawn her off on anybody. She's mine for the next 120 years. <laughs> and you get this. He took her as his wife, and he worked seven more years for the wife that he really believed was his. And just as he deceived his father in a time where his father could not, what, see, but he could touch and he could smell, God says, let me show you what it's like to be deceived. And he gives him that love that's actually going to produce an act of will rather than love that produced by emotions. And so what I wanted you to understand is this, is that Jacob kept Leah as his wife as an act of faithfulness, not as an act of happiness. Because when you looked at Leah, there was nothing about it that made you happy. Understand? But... He knew that to be obedient, it was an act of will. It's not devoid of emotion, but emotion's not your primary context. And then look, love leads to action. What does it say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Understand? With all your might. It means that it leads to force. It leads to action. So get this. Love is a verb. Love is an action. Love is not a noun. It's not something you fall in and out of. It's not like a rocking chair. You don't get in it and fall out of it. Love is an act followed by emotion, 
the soul, and it's an act. It's something that you choose to do every single day. Now, why do we look at this? Because here's, the, here's the, really the four reasons why I'm going to give them to you super fast. Well, one, a biblical model of love is transferable. A mythological type of love built on Greco-Roman principles where a Cupid shoots you has no love for people outside of a romantic relationship. Understand that? Like when a Cupid shoots you, then it shoots you to love this person, but it doesn't give you any help for loving the, your neighbor. It doesn't give you any help for loving your children. But the Bible, when you love the Lord your God with all your heart, when you love him with all your soul, when you love him with all your strength or your might, then guess what? You don't simply have love for your first neighbor, your wife, but you have love for your children. You have love for anyone. Why? Because the first and greatest command is love the Lord your God with all your heart. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's different than a Roman mythology type of love. And so why is Christ-centered love important? Because it's transferable. It goes between relationships. You love your coworker just as God's called you to love your wife. Second one is it doesn't wane. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't wane. It means that there's never a point where you can look at your wife and say, I just don't love you anymore. Because if it is an act of choice, it's an act of divine will, then it means that even though she's gained 20 pounds, and even though you've gained 40, which it baffles me how a husband can go, my wife just doesn't look the same. I'm like, and you think you do? <laughs> but that type of love, it wanes. It's conditional. It has things attached to it that as long as you maintain the look that you had, as long as you don't love our children more than you love me, then we're good. But the moment that you do this or that, then I'm out. The moment that I see someone at work that I think is more attractive or that gives me more attention or that promotes my feelings or emotions more, then I'm no longer in love with you and I'm now in love with them. But biblical love says, no, you cannot do that. And the last one, is biblical love is this, eternal. It's eternal. It's eternal. What does it mean? Well, it means in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8, listen to this. Love is patient and it is kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice with the wrongdoing, but rejoice with the truth. And that's all throughout all relationships, all transferable relationships. And it says love bears all things, believe all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. It endures when she gains weight. It endures when she doesn't give you the attention that you think she should give you. It endures when he's slothful and lazy. Why? Because love goes beyond emotions. It's an act of will, accompanied by emotions, but leads to action. Understand? But look at this. Love never ends. It's eternal. It means that every investment that you make in every relationship, every act of love, every act of kindness that you do has eternal ramifications. See, God didn't simply put us on here for a Greco-Roman type of love, a love that comes and goes. He gave us relationship. He put people in our lives to invest in, to love well, to lead well, for the purpose of preparing those relationships for eternal value. And when you start looking at things from eternal perspective, then it means you do not you no longer freak out because one load of laundry didn't get done. You don't freak out because there's dishes that are in the sink from two days ago. You don't freak out when your kindergartner's late for school. Why? Because in light of eternity, is the argument over the dishes more important than displaying God's love that lasts for eternity? is the fact that your kindergarten is going to actually miss a day of school or be late worth an argument or a fight 
No, not in light of eternity. And when you start looking at things based off of eternal concepts and values, then it takes some of the arguments that we have, which are mundane, sometimes centered on egos, and most of all, irrelevant, and it puts light on them. Why? Because the things that we talk about in our marriage now have substance rather than short-term value. Understand? Love is eternal. It lasts a lifetime. It's good stuff, right? Why is that good? Here's why. Because it causes us to evaluate. And here's a question I have for you as parents, as a couple, maybe even as singles in here that you may be dating, etc. If your children were to look at you, or even for that matter, if you don't have children but other people, your parents, your grandparents, your friends would look at you, would they say that you have a biblical type of love? One that's through will, sheer determination, not based off emotions? Or do they say, man, they've got kind of a puppy dog look in their eyes? Because if that's your love basis right now, then you're destined, you're on a road with our culture that's going to lead to 50% of our marriages leading to divorce. If you say it's a God-centered, biblical mandate, this is how God's designed the home, we're going to fight for our family, we're going to love God with all of our heart, we're going to work towards loving God and allow us to be brought together more, then you're on the right track. And all of it depends on how you view love. But what do your kids, what do people outside of you say? Do they say, well, you, you kind of have more of a puppy dog type of love? Or do they say, no, you have a Christ-centered type of love? A Christ-centered type of love is this. A man staying with his wife after a car accident and her disability. He has to feed her. He has to clothe her. He knows every single day of his life is going to be miserable. But he says, my obedience to God and my love for her out, outlives and outweighs what? My desire for happiness with someone else. That's the type of love that we're looking for. Could you imagine if Christ would have abandoned all hope and salvation through the cross because he looked at us and our lack of stability and love. And in his emotions, he said, I don't know that I'm gonna do this for them sinners. What if he even took away the idea of salvation because you couldn't live up to his expectation? We wouldn't wanna serve a God like that, right? I'll tell you, I don't wanna be married to a woman like that. I wanna be married to a woman. I want ladies to be married to men who say, I have the same attitude as Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he gave himself up, his life, to even death, death on the cross. That's what love is. Amen? That's huge. It'll change our marriages, and it'll change our families, and it's a concept of love that has to be talked about on this Valentine's Day. It's a type of love that leads to action. And so, ladies, contrary to what you've ever thought about me, you're going to love me today, okay? Um, <clears throat> I remember early on in our relationship, dating, et cetera, um, there, uh, there's no doubt in my, in, in my mind that Kelly and I, we had a, a relationship based off of infatuation and a little bit of God. It, it wasn't primarily God-centered and it wasn't primarily infatuation. It was kind of a, a conglomeration of the two, right? But early on, I mean, I would do things that I don't no normally do now. And one of the things, and I'm not throwing any guy under the bus, don't shoot me an email or anything like that. But I noticed that for so long, I would just give her gifts. Like, and it didn't matter that I would just buy gifts here, here, and here. And one of the things that I always do, right, was I would, I would 
buy $40 set of flowers. And she loves flowers, don't get me wrong. But one thing I noticed is that the $40 set of flowers was dead in three days. And so I just kind of made a kind of decree in my own mind a few years ago that I'm going to be, I'm going to have to think some things out a little bit better than what I have been. I'm not going to just send her roses. And I'm not, I'm not saying that if you sent your wife roses that you didn't put any thought into it. But this year, I thought, I've got to do something that I did a couple of years ago, and I've got to do something that kind of knocks the ball out of the park. You know, I just need to love her, and, and I need to fight for our family. And a couple of years ago, I did this thing where I had this, this bottle jar, had this lady decorate or whatever, and I spent time, and I made like these strips, and it had scripture. Sometimes it was just a word of encouragement, and I stuck them all in there. We're in the middle of planting a church, and we had three kids at home, and there wouldn't be uncommon for Kelly to call me in the middle of the day. She's like, I just need an adult conversation. And, you know, we have all that cry fest and stuff. And so one of the things that I noticed is like, hey, I need to encourage her more. And even if I'm not there, then there could be a jar of encouragement. She can just go and grab a note of encouragement. It may have a scripture. It may just say, hey, you're an incredible wife. It may, you could have anything on it. And so I thought, okay, that's great. So this year I was kind of started thinking about, I was like, I'm going to do some coupons for my wife. And coupons like this, like breakfast in bed. And by the way, you can sleep in too, which means I'm going to give my kids Benadryl and not four. Um, <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, one late night craving delivered. So it means that she's like, hey, I want, I want a blizzard. I'm like, okay, well, it's 945. Well, oh, well, I just redeemed. Okay, awesome. Your blizzard's your what? What do you want? Uh, yes day, a chance to redeem one of the old honeydews. Now, there's multiple, but she has to choose one. Um, <laughs> Just me day. No work, no phones, no web, no kids, just me and you. Nobody can call me. I'm not going to talk about weddings or funerals. I'm not going to talk about church. It's just me and you. There's girls not out, and I keep the kids, which I hope she didn't use that one just yet. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Uh, your wish is my command. So, like, I just made all these deals up. Like, just spontaneous day, whatever you want to do, we're in, okay? And the only, like, requirements that I made is, like, one, you cannot, we, there is no cash value, okay? And so... Which means, too, I can't buy her off. So I can't say, hey, I'll, I don't really want to do that, 50, you know, that honeydew, so I get a $50 bill, buy that coupon. There's none of that. So I have to do these things when she turns them in. The second thing is, is that she cannot turn them all in in one week, meaning she cannot, I cannot wash her car, keep the kids, et cetera. She has to spread them out over the course of the year. She can use at most two a month, okay? <laughs> you got me? There's only 10 coupons or spread them out over the year, whatever. But as I was talking to our, we have leadership meetings on Tuesday. And I literally, I, on Monday night, I looked at it. I was like, I'm going to do this, et cetera. But I was like, hey, I got to throw this out there. Maybe it's lame. Maybe it's not. Y'all tell me. I was like, what if we made coupon books for the entire group of men in our church to give their wives? And I was like, because there's some of us like me that we're doofus. We haven't even done anything yet. Okay. And so we're like, this would be great. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Like, no, and I get it. It's not your idea, but listen, it, it has nothing, look, it's going to do nothing but be a benefit to you in your marriage. And uh, so I was like, what do y'all think? And they were like, oh, I think it's a good idea. And then the naysaying came in like, well, I don't think we can get them all printed. I don't think we can get them all designed. And I'm like, oh, yes, we can. I'm like, one, I'll design them today. And then Jennifer, you're going to have to do what Jennifer does. And that means gets on it, right? And so Jennifer did what Jennifer does, and we had these things whipped out. And so the purpose of them is this, is that you would take them, husbands, they're out in the foyer. We're not going to make you pick them up. I would say that if you don't want your marriage to end today, you probably should pick them up, okay? 
Um, wives, the reason that you're going to love us is this, is that even in here, there's a 20-minute massage, you know? I'm like, uh, there's one in here that says it's all about you. And so it's just awesome, right? Now, I thought, okay, you're going to have all the all us, because we're men, right? We are made of dirt, and first thing we say is, oh, gosh, you know? And they see it, like they see it. We do it, and they see it, okay? But I think we'll raise the stakes a little bit, okay? And so here's what we decided at, at Stone Point. We decided that if every time you use a coupon, and by the way, parents, your kids, as we move through the series, are going to get their own coupon books. A night to throw catch with dad, a night to have just with mom, a day of no chores, whatever. And it's to promote the family. But every time that your family will go to our Facebook page, you can do a QR code on your phone. It'll take you right to our page. You hashtag fit to fight. There's some of you in here. You're like hashtag. I don't know what a hashtag really means. Um, a hashtag is a search engine, like the Googler, you know, um, you type something in and it comes up. Well, when you hashtag on our Facebook page or on our Twitter page, hashtag fit to fight, it means it's a search engine. I can hashtag fit to fight and I can see every single person that's hashtagged fit to fight. And so if you'll hashtag fit to fight when your husband's cleaning your car, you'll take a picture of him and say, my husband rocks. He's cleaning my car and it hadn't been cleaned in six years. Then we know <laughs> that not only is your marriage getting better, but that your kids are winning too. Why? Because it's promoting the family by acts of divine will. Not feelings, because I'm not going to feel like a few of these, okay? But I'm going to do them, <laughs> right? Because I love my wife. I cherish her. I value her. And then here's what we're going to do. After all of these coupons come in, fit to fight, it's the only way it's eligible. You fit to fight it, take a picture of it. You've got to put it on our Facebook page. You have to email it. If you don't know how to work Facebook or Twitter, email it to us. And every time we drop it in a bucket, there's a potential for some of you that you're married and have five kids that you could have 60 of these coupons in. There's some of you are like, I'm not going to have 60. Well, hey, your 10 may be the stash, right? But on Christmas Eve service, if you're there, and we're going to draw out of this bucket fit to fight challenge at the end of the year. And whatever family wins, we're going to give them an all expense paid vacation, either a Disney cruise or a ski trip to Colorado. Okay. And so why are we doing that? Because we value families. We value families. And we want you to know that we're not merely speaking of it, but we're going to match it. And so men do not miss this opportunity. Okay. <laughs> Let me pray for you, and then we're out. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you, and uh, pray, God, that you would spur us on towards love and good deeds. I pray that we would know that, that love is an act of divine will, that it's something that we choose to do. It's not something we fall in and out of. It's not uh, an emotion type of love, but, Lord, our will is accompanied by emotions, and it leads to action. It leads to us loving and serving like Jesus loved and served. And so help us to be the model of Christ for our families. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.